بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار So we continue our series of lessons on the topic of the goals and the wisdoms behind the commands and the prohibitions and in the previous lesson we gave you a, basically a, a two page or a one sided sheet with a diagram and this diagram basically summarizes everything that we've been discussing so far. And so the essence of the whole matter is that the legislation of Islam has come to guarantee what we call the necessities and the needs and then the beautifications or the perfections. Right, because life is divided into necessities, needs and beautifications. And the whole of the Sharia, the legislation of Islam, it has come, all of its laws, all of its commands, all of its prohibitions, they have come to guarantee these three things or these three levels. The necessities, the needs and the beautifications. As for the necessities, the daruriyat, we said that they are five in number. The religion, sound religion, and then life, and then intellect, and then uh, wealth, and then lineage. Without protection and guaranteeing of these five things, then the world, nor the hereafter, it cannot be rectified. And so... In the past, I believe we've had five lessons so far, if I'm not mistaken, five or six. Uh, this is what we discussed uh, in detail. And so what we're going to do today, inshallah ta'ala, uh, is we're going to quote mainly from Shaykh Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, and his speech on this topic. And we, we mentioned in the previous lesson that we're going to give illustrations, practical illustrations or examples as to how the legislation of Islam has come in order to protect each of these things, whether it's sound religion, whether it's a person's uh, life or intellect or wealth or lineage. So today we're going to quote, all these quotes are basically from Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and we're going to look at specifically how the Sharia has come to preserve sound religion. What are the things that Islam has legislated or enjoined through which sound religion is protected. Because without sound religion, without religion remaining intact, and without people implementing the deen of Islam, and establishing tawheed, and establishing iman, and establishing uh, love of Allah, love of his messenger, then the deen e- erodes and disappears. So we see that within Islam, there are many things which are enjoined, uh, through which... The preservation of the religion is is guaranteed. So all these quotations are going to be from Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah. So we, we'll begin first of all with 
his commentary on the hadith, the famous hadith in which Allah Azawajal, he says that I have prohibited Ya ibadi inni haramtu zulm ala nafsi O my servants, indeed I have made oppression to be unlawful upon myself. And I have made it unlawful between you. Now in this hadith, if you look at, there are actually ten sentences in this hadith. But at the beginning, we see that, it's a hadith Qudsi as well, that Allah Azawajal, He said, He mentioned four things. So He said, after mentioning the, the prohibition of zulm, he said, All of you are misguided except the one whom I guide. So ask guidance from me. And all of you are hungry except the one whom I feed. Ask provision from me and I shall feed you. And all of you are naked except the one whom I clothe. So seek clothing from me and I shall clothe you. And all of you are... Uh, you know, you're sinful except the one whom I grant forgiveness. So seek forgiveness. Uh, uh, so seek forgiveness from me, and I shall forgive you. So here in these four things, there are, there are four things which are mentioned in this hadith. There is hidayah, which is guidance, and then there is food, and then there is clothing, and then there is forgiveness. So Ibn Taymiyyah, he comments upon this hadith and he explains when Allah mentioned at the beginning of, the, of this hadith, hadith Qudsi, what he obligated upon himself of justice and the prohibition of zulm, of oppression. He then mentioned alongside that how he has been benevolent and kind to his servants. Alongside the fact that he is free of need from them. He is not in need of them. Yeah, and they are in need of him. And how they are not able to bring about any benefit by themselves. Nor to repel any harm. Except or unless Allah is the one who facilitates that for them. And then he asked his servants. Or then he ordered his servants. In fact he ordered his servants to ask him. For these things. And he informed them. That they are not able to bring about any benefit. Nor, they're, not, they're not able to benefit him. Nor harm him. In any way whatsoever. Alongside the fact that he brings so many favors to them. And repels so many harms from them. So what Ibn Taymiyyah is, is basically saying here. That Allah is without any need. Without any want. And he is the one who shows all of the favors, all of the blessings, all of the benefits, and he repels all of the harms. So in other words, there are two things that Allah bestows upon his servants. Either it's benefits, things that benefit them, or the repulsion of harms. Things that, you know, Allah distances them from by way of what he, what he, what he legislates. So then Ibn Taymiyyah comes to the, the actual point that we want to extract. He says, that drawing out a benefit and repelling a harm is either in relation to the religion or it is in relation to the world. It is either deen or dunya. This means that we therefore have four categories altogether. 
there is either seeking of benefit in the worldly sense and repelling of harm in the worldly sense. Or there is seeking of benefit in the hereafter, meaning seeking the reward in the hereafter and repelling the harm in the hereafter, which is saving yourself from punishment and torment in, 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 in the hellfire. So, this means that there's four categories all together. And in this hadith, all of the benefits and all of the harms in this life and the next have been addressed. How is this? Because Allah he mentioned Al-Hidayah Wal-Maghfirah All of you are misguided except the one whom I guide. So ask guidance from me. And he said, all of you are, you, you fall into sin. Except the one whom I, whom I forgive. So seek forgiveness from me. So he mentioned, Al-Hidayah Wal-Maghfirah. Al-Hidayah Wal-Maghfirah. This benefit is a benefit in the religion. This is deen now. Right? So these two things cover the deen, cover the religion. So when you seek guidance, Al-Hidayah is to draw out benefit. Is to draw out benefit. So this is Jalbul Manfa'a. Jalbul Manfa'a. And Al Maghfira, which is forgiveness, this is Allah repelling harm from you on account of your sins. So these two affairs now cover the religion. Drawing the benefit to yourself, which is guidance, and repelling the harm from yourself, which is Al Maghfira, which is Allah's forgiveness. Right? So harm and benefit have been addressed as it relates to the religion, by Al-Hidayah and Al-Maghfirah. And as for the world, then what did he say? He said, all of you are hungry, except the one whom I feed. And all of you are naked, except the one whom I clothe. So food and clothing are the benefit in the worldly sense. As for food, this is when you seek the benefit. This is Jalbul Manfa'a. You eat for the benefit of the food, for nutrition, keeping your body strong, keeping you alive, giving you longevity, and so on and so forth. Right? So this is Jalbul Manfa'a. And as for the clothing, you wear clothing for the repulsion of harm. Right? For protection, protection from the elements. And, you know, um, to, to remove harm from yourself. So, the food and the clothing is drawing benefit and repelling harm in the worldly sense. And Ibn Timmah says we can also look at it in another way as well. We can look at, it, look at it from the angle of the heart and the body. As for Al-Hidayah and Maghfira, which is seeking guidance and forgiveness, this relates to the heart. Right, this is associated with the heart, and the heart is the king of all of the body. And it is the foundation of all other actions. All other actions that you do, they spring from the heart, and they spring from the, the irada, the, the desire or the wish which emanates from the, from, from, you know, from the, from the heart. And as for at-ta'am, food and clothing, then this relates to the body. This is just something to do with the body. And, it, you know, the, the food brings about benefit and the clothing repels the harm. So look at how in this Hadith Qudsi, Shaykh Hussam Tami, he says, that he began 
the issue by mentioning guidance. So guidance was mentioned first. And guidance obviously is beneficial to the religion. And it is, it is assorted with, with, with the religion. And every other action that a person does, it follows on from the guidance of Allah that is granted to them. So the point that we want to make from this citation from Ibn Taymiyyah is that if you remember we said in the some of the previous lessons, we said that what is the evidence that Islam has come to guarantee the, the necessities and the needs and the beautifications? We said there isn't any one evidence which says, for example, it mentions these words, Dururiyat, Hajiyat, there's nothing like that. But the whole Qur'an and the Sunnah, when you look at it and you reflect upon it, you find that it is replete, it is full of drawing out benefits for the servant and repelling harms from the servant. And so this hadith is a perfect example of how this is illustrated. Right? Through guidance, forgiveness, and food, and clothing, these are drawing out the benefits and repelling all of the harms in the deen and the dunya together. And even more clearer, we see that in the Qur'an, we see something that is identical to what we've just mentioned. Because Ibrahim alayhi salam, and again, uh, this is something that Ibn Taymiyyah mentions as well as an evidence. We see in Surah Al-Shu'ara, the 26th Surah, mentions about Ibrahim alayhi salam. Now listen to the words and you'll see the connection between this passage and the Hadith Qudsi. Ibrahim al-Islam, he said, الَّذِي خَلَقَنِي فَهُوَ يَحْدِينَ The one who created me, and then he gives me guidance. So mentioned guidance. وَالَّذِي هُوَ يُطْعِمُنِي وَيَسْقِينَ And the one who gives me to eat, or feeds me, and gives me to drink. So here now it is mentioned food and drink. And then he said, وَإِذَا مَرِقْتُ فَهُوَ يَشْفِينَ and when I fall ill, he is the one who cures me. <laughs> and the one who will cause me to die and then bring me back to life. And the one whom I hope will forgive my sin on the day of judgment, on the day of uh, judgment and recompense. Look at how the same things are mentioned in this in this passage. So he mentioned first of all the one who created me and gives me guidance. This now guidance is drawing benefit in the religion. In the religion. And the one who feeds me and gives me to drink and when I fall ill, he is the one who cures me. Look at how this is now drawing out benefit in terms of food and drink. And then repelling harm when it comes to disease and malady. Right? Because Allah is the creator of all of the causes and the effects and the ways and the means. And so therefore when we treat ourselves, Allah is the true healer. Allah is the true, He is the Shafi, He is the one who actually cures in reality. So this now is drawing benefit, Jalbul Manfa'a. Drawing, drawing benefit to oneself and repelling harm from oneself in the worldly sense. Then he said, the one who will cause me to die and will cause me to uh, bring, bring me back to life again. 
and the one whom I hope will forgive me my sin on the day of resurrection. Uh, look at how forgiveness now is mentioned. So you mentioned Hidayah first and forgiveness at the end. Exactly the same as what you find in the Hadith Qudsi. You mentioned Hidayah first, then you mentioned food and clothing, then you mentioned uh, forgiveness. So, likewise, this passage we can say, this passage is a foundation in this topic, in this subject area that we are discussing, in the masalih, in the beneficial interests of the servants, in relation to their necessities and their needs, and you know whatever follows on from that. And so, Ibn Taymiyyah says that indeed, a person is in need of إِنَّ الْإِنسَانِ يَحْتَاجُ إِلَىٰ جَلْبِ الْمَنْفَعَةِ لِقَلْبِهِ وَجِسْمِهِ Indeed, a man is in need of drawing benefit for his heart and his body. His heart needs guidance and forgiveness and his body needs food, drink, clothing and protection and so on and so forth and a cure from, from uh, illness. And, uh, and a repulsion of harm from that. And this, هُوَ أَمْرُ الدِّينِ وَالدُّنْيَا and he also said in, um, okay, I mean, he has many statements like this in fact. Um, and then he says, indeed the sharia, inna sharia jaat bi tahsil al masalih wa takmiliha wa ta'atil al mafasid wa taqliliha. Indeed the sharia has come to acquire all of the beneficial interests of the servants and to perfect them, to complete them, and to invalidate, to remove all of the mafasid, the things that corrupt and to diminish them. So, the point from all of this now is, so where we want to lead from these statements is to clarify a misconception, which is that when some people speak about this subject of the laws of Islam protecting the necessities, they sometimes limit themselves to only specific areas. Let me give you an example. So, some people, when they speak about it, they say, they speak only from the angle of the punishments, for example, the punishments, right? So, Islam has come to protect religion because there is the punishment of the apostate, right? And Islam has come to protect life because there is the punishment for the one who commits a murder, right? And Islam has come to, pro- pro- to protect the intellect, the mind, because there is a punishment for the one who consumes alcohol or drinks alcohol, right? There are, there are exemplary punishments for them. And Islam has come to protect uh, lineage because there is punishment for the one who falls into adultery or fornication. And Islam has come to protect wealth because there is punishment for the one who steals. So this is how Islam guarantees all of the necessities because it punishes people, right, who violate these five necessities. And so all of the speech now is centered around just this angle. So Ibn Taymiyyah, in many of his statements, he says that limiting to just these considerations is incorrect. Rather, Islam, the law of Islam is more broad, more comprehensive than to be limited just to these considerations, right? As if it's only to do, to do with punishments. That Islam guarantees things, guarantees these things by punishing those who violate them. This is a very narrow, restricted way of looking at the laws in Islam and the legislation of Islam as a whole. So, once this is clear, 
then we are going to bring, uh, as I said, many, many statements of uh, Shaykh al-Islam Taymiyyah, uh, which will expand upon this point and make this point clear. And we're going to focus our discussion today just purely on the preservation on the religion, preservation of the religion. How the Sharia has come to ensure that the deen remains established in the hearts of the people and within the society. And this this will uh, be apparent from numerous uh, considerations. So, first quote that we're going to bring, Shaykh al-Islam Taymi, he says, Ar-Risala daruriya lil-ibad. Ar-Risala meaning the message, the message which has come of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. This message is absolutely necessary for the servants. Meaning Allah sending revelation, sending messengers, sending revealed books, sending the law, all of this is the risala. This is daruriya. It is absolutely necessary, it is a necessity for the servants. La buddha lahum minha. It is absolutely vital for them. And their need for it is above every other need. So the need for revelation from Allah, for, for, for guidance from Allah is above every other need of food, of drink, of relations, of everything else. Our need for that is greater than every other need. وَالْرِسَالَ رُوحُ الْعَالَمِ وَنُورُ حَيَاتِهِ This risala is the spirit, is the, is the soul of the world and the light of its life. It is a spirit and life to the world. So without Allah sending this guidance or this risala, then this world doesn't have a spirit, nor does it have its life have any light. So whatever, so what rectification is there for the world when it is devoid of this of its of its soul, of its spirit, and of its light and of its life? And the disbeliever is in the darknesses of disbelief, is in the dhulamat, darknesses of disbelief, and shirk. And the person who's upon this, or in this, he is not living. He's not a living person. Even though physically he's living, when he's absent, the spirit of revelation, the soul of revelation, and the light, and the life of revelation, then he is not actually living even though physically he has life just like animals have life. Animals live. They don't have the spirit of revelation, the ruh of revelation, nor the light of revelation. They are living nevertheless. And so when a person who is in the darknesses of disbelief and shirk, then his life resembles that. But as for true life, true life, then this true life is what Allah sends by way of the risala. And if the servant does not acquire the light of this message and its life, then his heart will die. His heart will die. It will die in such a way that life can never ever be hoped for it again. Or he will be so miserable in his life, he will be so miserable that he will never have any happiness alongside his life again. Right, so in other words, true happiness is the happiness which is brought about by way of the by way of the risala. And he says also another statement uh, the risala, meaning the message from Allah, is necessary for rectifying the servant in his worldly life 
and in the life of the hereafter. And just like there is no rectification for him in the hereafter, except by following the message, then likewise there is no rectification or benefit for him in his worldly life, except by following the message. So these statements, again, they show to us that the whole of the religion is based upon drawing out benefits for the servant in this life and repelling harms and drawing out the benefits for the servant in the next life and repelling the harms. And all of this is by way of the by way of the, the risala, the sending of the the message which is Allah's Sharia, which is his law, which is his commands, which is his prohibitions, and so on and so forth. So from this then we want to speak about the preservation, the protection of the first necessity, the deen, preservation of sound religion. This is the foundation of everything. If there is no preservation of sound religion, then the whole world, the servants become corrupt, the whole world becomes corrupt, and the people's rights are lost, and there's chaos, and everything else after that. Your life is lost, your intellect is lost, your your, your wealth is lost. Your Why? Because once the, the deen has gone, then everything else follows with it as well. So the first and the greatest issue is the preservation of the deen. How does the law, how does the sharia ensure the, the preservation of itself, the preservation of the deen of Allah Azawajal? And we are going to look at numerous considerations from uh, the speech of Ibn Taymiyyah in this regard. So first of all, Ibn Taymiyyah says, uh, and this is in Al-Jawab Al-Sahih, he says, speaking about the importance of this topic, he says, when it is the case that the, per- that the person who judges among the people with respect to their wealth and their blood and their honor. So speaking about Aqadi, when a person, he judges in the disputes between the people, right? If this person is not just, then this person will be in the hellfire, right? The judge that doesn't judge honestly and justly between people in um, material disputes, in issues to do with blood, issues to do with honor, then he will be in the hellfire. How then will it be for the one who speaks and judges regarding beliefs and religions and the foundations of Iman and the knowledge about Allah and the various types of sciences when he speaks in these issues without knowledge and without justice? This is even worse. Right? So in other words, speaking about the deen of Allah and judging in the disputes between people when it comes to beliefs Right between the various religions and doctrines, if a person doesn't do this with knowledge and with justice, this is even worse than when you judge between people in the disputes between them in the worldly affairs, in material affairs. Right? They have a dispute about wealth, dispute about a business trans- transaction, dispute about someone slandered someone's honor. Right? This is this is even even more severe. This is why he says. This is the way of the people of bid'ah and ahwa, the people of innovation and desires. So in other words, the judge who does not judge with justice in the material disputes between people, he is not as worse or not as evil as those people who speak about the deen of Allah and the various doctrines and the creeds out of ignorance and out of injustice which is the people of innovation and misguidance. 
Why? Because what are they doing? They are causing the deen to be lost. What are these people doing? They are just taking wealth and lawfully from people. They are reviling people's honors. They are, you know, that's what they are doing. They are causing harm to the deen. But these people, the people of innovation and misguidance, they are causing harm to the religion itself. So, he then mentions that the verse in the Quran, وَيْلٌ لِلْمُطَفِّفِينَ Surah Al-Mutafifin Woe be to those who are engaged in fraud. You know, shady dealings, right? الَّذِينَ إِذَا اقْتَالُوا عَلَى النَّاسِ يَسْتَوْفُونَ وَإِذَا كَالُوهُمْ أَوْ وَزَنُهُمْ يُخْسِرُونَ Those who when they um, want their measure from others, they demand full measure. Right? They want every last bit that, that they deserve. They want it. But, when they are, you know, when they are weighed, made to weigh and measure, then they want to give less. Right? So Allah curses these, these, these types of people. Ibn Taymi says, where is this greediness and this stinginess in relation to wealth compared to the greediness and stinginess in relation to intellect and religions. Right? So meaning that when a person is stingy and greedy and you know he doesn't speak, he doesn't deal with justice in relation to matters of intellect and matters of doctrines and beliefs. Right? This person is worse than the one who does it in material affairs. In material affairs. So meaning he's speaking here, for example, of many of the people of innovation, where they refuse to submit to the truth, and they refuse to accept sound reason when it is presented to them, right? And they, they want to adhere to, the, to their falsehood. These people are worse in their stinginess in, 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 in relation to sound reason and uh, sound beliefs, than the people who basically cheat from the people in, you know, um, weights and measures and so on and so forth. So the point being from these quotations is that Ibn Taymi considers that the preservation of the religion is the foundation of everything else. It's greater than everything else. And he will illustrate for us how Allah in what he has legislated and the Messenger وسلم, in what he has legislated how they how they have guaranteed the preservation of this religion in the hearts and the minds of the of the people. So we're going to look at how, as we said before, min janibil wujud wa min janibil adam. Right. So first of all, from the angle of those things which are legislated to ensure that the religion exists, and those things which ensure that the religion doesn't cease to exist, right? Because always legislation always comes from two angles, these two angles. So, the next statement from Nathemiah, we're speaking about love of Allah and having knowledge of Allah and making takbir of Allah, how all of these things ensure the preservation of the deen, the foundation of the deen, in the hearts and minds of the people. So Ibn Taymiyyah says, and this... Um, this quotation is uh, in his Majmu' al-Fatawa. All these quotations mostly from Majmu' al-Fatawa. He says, The religion that is established in the heart, when the heart has iman and knowledge, when it has faith and knowledge, this is the foundation. The foundation of the religion is, is begins in your heart. 
It has knowledge, it has iman, and it has various, you know, it has a hal, it, is, it has various states and feelings. And as for the outward actions, they are the branches. They are the branches. And they complete a person's iman. So the religion, when the religion is first established, then it is established from its foundations, which is in the heart, and then it is completed through its branches. And this is what we find that Allah in Makkah, He revealed all the foundations of the religion when the message of Allah was in Makkah. The usul of Tawheed, the foundations of Tawheed. All these were revealed in Makkah. Likewise, all of the parables, the amthal, that are given in the Qur'an, you find that they were, you know, they give you rational analogies and, uh, you know, al-maqayis, you know, rational uh, analogies and examples and illustrations. And likewise, the various stories of past prophets and messengers, and likewise threats which are made of punishment, and promises which are made of reward. Where were all of these? They were in Mecca. To lay the foundation of the religion in the hearts of the people. right? Because the asal of the deen begins in the heart. And these topics, they were revealed in Mecca. Then he said, ثُمَّ أَنزَلَ بِالْمَدِينَةِ لَمَّا سَارَ لَهُ قُوَّةِ فُرُوعَهُ الظاهرة من الجمعة والجماعة والأذان والإقامة والجهاد والصيام وتحريم الخمر والزنا والميسر. So he says, then in Medina, when the Messenger of Islam had some strength, all of the outward branches, such as the Juma, the Jama'a, the congregational prayers, the Adhan, the Iqama, the Jihad, fasting, the prohibition of alcohol, the prohibition of zina, the prohibition of fornication, the prohibition of games of chance and gambling, all of that, all of these affairs which are from the obligations and the haram things, they were revealed in Medina. So the foundations of the religion, they, from them, extend the branches of the religion. And the branches of the religion, they complete the foundations of the religion and they preserve and protect it. So when there is any deficiency outwardly, then it will always begin from the branches. In other words, deficiency of the religion begins from the branches, then it works its way down into the root and the foundations. So from this, we see how Allah established first of all religion into the hearts of the people, to make it rooted into the hearts of the people. And this is by way of the foundations of Tawheed, Iman, and by way of all of those rational examples which explain the futility of shirk and so on and so forth. So this is one way, right? Rooting iman into the hearts of the people through these various forms and methods, through threats, promises, rational analogies, by um, the uh, mentioning the resurrection, Mentioning Tawheed and so on and so forth, right? This is to ensure the existence of the religion into the hearts of the people. Second illustration is the instilling the love of Allah and His Messenger into the hearts of the people, right? This is to maintain the preservation of the religion. So, as you know, in the hadith, that no one 
will twi- will taste the sweetness of iman until Allah and his messenger become more beloved to him than everything else and uh, that is does not love his brother except for the sake of Allah and he dislikes he hates to return back to a disbelief um, more than he dislikes to be entered into the hellfire that hadith you aware of Ibn Taymi comments upon this and he says that the love of Allah on behalf of the servant it is completed by three things so the first of all first of first of them is that Allah and his messenger are more beloved to him than everything else besides them both because loving Allah and his messenger it's not something where you just have the asal of the love. It's not something where you say, I love Allah, I love the messenger. So basically, the, the asal of the love is there. This is not enough. Rather, it has to be a love which is above every other type of love. Right? This is the love that is being spoken of. That has to exist in the heart of every single every single uh, believer. Then, when he loves others besides Allah, it has to be for the sake of Allah as well. So you love your brother for no other reason, only for the sake of Allah And thirdly, you hate what opposes iman, meaning you hate to go back to kufr, greater than you would hate to be thrown into the hellfire. Right? So this is now, and this is just one quotation, there's probably many other quotations as well. The point being from this, look at how Islam has come to instill the love of Allah, genuine love that is, into the hearts of the believers. This is genuine love, right? Genuine love is love that is followed by obedience. Obedience with the law. So basically, the love of a Muslim for Allah and his messenger is not like the love of a Christian for you know, the Father in Jesus. Because that is a love that's devoid of any compliance. Because there is no law to follow. Right? There's, there's no obedience. You just say, I love Jesus, and just merely because of my love, I will now receive salvation. Right? There's no, there's no like legislated prayers. There's no legislated actions. There's no, you know, upon which your salvation uh, require which your salvation requires, right? So the way that Islam instills love into the hearts of the believers and makes that love conditional upon obedience. Kul in kuntum Allah So if you truly love Allah, then follow me. Allah will love you, right? This we can see now clearly how Islam will be preserved and its shara'ir, meaning the the outwardly observed legislated actions, because they've been made essential to iman and essential to a person's love, then it, it ensures that the religion remains, it is preserved. In a way that you do not see with, or you don't see with Christianity for sure, right? Or any other religion which has been altered and which has been changed. So this now is a second illustration. The first one was just about iman, instilling iman in the hearts and tawheed. This one is now to do with Mahabba, instilling love in the hearts of, of the servants. The third one, third statement that we're going to look at, is just the issue of takbir. 
takbir and this is a tremendous insightful statement from Shaykh Islam Tamir about takbir itself takbir is what we say Allahu Akbar Allah is the greatest so this is a beautiful passage he says min al ma'lum anna takbir Allah mashru'un laylatan laylatul fitr wa yawm al adha aqib as salawat he says it is known that making takbir of Allah is legislated on the night of the Eid of Fitr and likewise on the days of the the sacrifice on the days of the Eid al-Adha then after them after the the, the the prayers and likewise when you make sa'i between al-Safa al-Safa and Marwa so when you make uh, Umrah or Hajj and you go between the the, 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 the Safa and Marwa likewise you make takbir likewise during war you make takbir Likewise, when you are ascending, you know, like uh, uh, an elevated, um, like like a slope or a hill, it's legislated to say Allahu Akbar. Likewise, in the adhan, we make the takbir. Likewise, during the prayer, we make takbir as we move from uh, position to position. Uh, another other such affairs. So Ibn Taymiyyah then goes on to mention many many texts from the Sunnah. To mention all those situations in which making takbir is legislated. <coughs> then, <coughs> after that he says, takbir is also legislated in repelling the enemy from the shayateen, from the devils among the men and the jinn. And also in repelling the fire which is an enemy to us, the fire is an enemy to us, the hellfire. And likewise, all of this, when we look at the way in which takbir has been legislated, he says that takbir has been legislated in all of the major uh, scenarios and situations. All important major scenarios and situations, the Eids, during jihad, when engaged in difficulty, when you know going uphill, um, and all these major scenarios and situations... We find it is in fil mawadi al kibar. Why? Because these are scenarios where basically many people gather, many people gather, or it is where tremendous action is being done, like the sa'i, for example, or the situation is such that it's a very, you know, dire situation, such as, for example, in jihad in the path of Allah, and in all these scenarios and situations. This takbir is legislated to, to make clear that Allahu Akbar, that Allah is the greatest. Allah is the greatest. And that His kibriya, that His grandeur, that it be, that it is something that dominates the hearts in all of these scenarios, in all of these difficult situations or situations where lots of people are gathered, huge numbers are gathered, so that it is the greatness of Allah which is dominating the heart and not the huge numbers, for example, or the difficulty of the of the scenario, like for example, it's jihad in the path of Allah, or if it's you're struggling to walk up steps or up, you know, a steep incline, right? So Allah's greatness is dominating the heart in all of these different scenarios. He then says, so so he says that that his greatness is dominating the hearts over the greatness of these individual affairs and thereby the deen is all for Allah it belongs to Allah it belongs to Allah and that the servants are extolling the greatness of Allah 
So by way of this, two objectives are fulfilled for them. First of all, the objective of worship. So they are worshipping Allah as they are making this takbir in all of these scenarios. And they are, you know, glorifying Allah, they are, they are aggrandizing Him, making Him greater, declaring Him to be great in their hearts. And likewise, وَمَقْسُودُ istiana. They are also achieving the goal of seeking aid from Allah. So this takbir, there's two things in it. The first is you are worshipping Allah. The heart is glorifying Him, declaring Him to be great. And secondly, the heart is seeking aid from Allah. It is making isti'ana by way of this takbir. And, you know, by submitting to Him, all of their great needs, all of their, you know, the difficult situations and their great needs. For this reason, وَلِهَذَا شُرِعَ التَّكْبِيرِ وَلِهَذَا takbir has been legislated for, meaning in different situations, for guidance and for sustenance and for support. Al-Hidayah wal-Rizq wal-Nasr. So basically if you look at the issue of Rizq and the issue of guidance and the issue of aid and support from Allah, if you were to look at, for example, the text in the Qur'an, the text in the Sunnah that relate to either guidance um, or the issue of um, sustenance or the issue of support from Allah, you'll find that Allah's greatness is being declared in those texts or in those supplications. <clears throat> Why? Because he says, he says that um, these three are the, are the things that all people seek. They seek guidance and they seek rizq and they seek aid and assistance. And as for rizq, as for provision, and assistance, aid and help, then a person only benefits from them in the world. But as for guidance, then its guidance, you know, encompasses the hereafter as well. So, um, this is why in all of these three types of things, takbir has been legislated. And this is because guidance is the greatest favor that Allah has bestowed upon mankind. And so, Ibn Taymiyyah has mentioned here the wisdom behind make, making takbir, when we make takbir, in many different situations and scenarios. And in particular, in moments of seeking guidance, and moments of seeking provision, seeking rizq from Allah, and in moments of seeking aid and assistance from Allah. So this now is a third way that we can see how the Sharia in the perfection of its legislation, how it makes the takbir of Allah to dominate our hearts in times and situations where we see, where, where we see or experience things which are great and mighty. Whether it be large numbers of people, right? So Jum'ah, Jama'ah, the Adhan is made, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Likewise, on the days of Eid, we make the takbir of Allah Azza Likewise, in difficult situations. So, Ibn Taymiyyah has explained to us here, has mentioned, in fact, many things here of the wisdom behind the legislation of takbir, the wisdom in the specific scenarios in which takbir is predominantly found. And what is meant by this takbir, it is to worship Allah on the one hand, and secondly, it is to seek isti'ana by way of Allah. Thirdly, it is to ensure that the heart always remains subservient to Allah. 
that Allah's greatness is always dominating the heart instead of the greatness of whatever task or thing that is that is in front of us. So this now is a, a third example of how the deen of Allah Azawajal, how it is how it is uh, preserved, its preservation is ensured. Another way that we see, and this is obviously very very uh, clear and apparent, and this is a, another nice statement from Shaykh al-Islam, is that just in general we see the way the Quran and the Sunnah they encourage us to adhere to the Deen of Allah Azza and to the you know all of those praiseworthy things which have been commanded. So Ibn Taymiyyah says he he says the message ar risala daruriya the sending of the message is necessary in rectifying the servant in his life and his hereafter. And just like there's no rectification in the hereafter except by following the message, likewise there's no rectification in the world, in his world, except by following the message. For this reason, mankind, the whole of mankind now, is compelled to legislation. Right? All of mankind needs legislation. Is compelled to legislation. So this is this is a refutation of like liberalism and, and modernism, the ones who speak about, you know, freedom and liberty, and they want to basically erode the law, the law which brings about rectification and benefit and protects everyone's beneficial interests. فَالْإِنسَانْ مُضَّرٌ إِلَى Mankind is compelled to the law, to legislation. And this is because every person is in between two motions. Every person has two motions. A motion towards what will draw benefit for him and a motion towards what will repel harm from him. Right? So all of mankind, you, me, everybody else, there's always two motions that we are drawn that we are drawn towards. Either we are drawn towards something that's going to bring about benefit or we are drawn towards something that's going to repel repel harm and the legislation is the light which distinguishes between what is harmful and what is beneficial right so try to picture what's going on here every human by his instinct he is drawn he has a motion either towards what will benefit him or a motion towards repelling what will harm him right so he's drawn to to these two things but what's the criterion through what criterion does he know and does he distinguish between what will actually benefit him and what will actually harm him right so therefore the person needs that criterion he needs that light what is that light it is the legislation of allah azawajal the shara Nur Allah fi ardihi. The legislation is the light of Allah upon His earth, and it is His justice between His servants, and it is His fortress. It is the fortress. It is the castle. The one who enters into it, then he will be amin. He will be secure, right? So, then Ibn Taymiyyah says that what do we intend by this legislation, this shara? And 
distinguishing between what is beneficial and harmful. He says the intent isn't just to know what is beneficial and harmful in terms of like your physical senses, right? This is not what is meant. So he illustrates with an example. He says many animals, they're able to tell the difference between dust and between wheat or barley or something like that. They know, they know what is what. They know that this is going to benefit them if they eat it. And they know that this is obviously not going to be of any value or benefit to them. Animals know how to do that. This is not what we are speaking of. We are not speaking about being able to physically know what's like, you know, touching fire is going to harm you, right? Or, you know, there are many repulsive smells which are going to, you know, make you ill or something like that. We're not talking about physical senses because animals can do that, okay? We're not speaking about that. What we are speaking of here, but when we speak of the law, and in fact Ibn Taymi says, for indeed the donkey and the camel can distinguish between, you know, grains and dust. Rather, what we are speaking of is actions and their harm and their benefit. In other words, actions that a human performs. What is the harm in them? And what is the benefit in them? This is the criterion that the law brings to you. The law is always in relation to this action will bring this benefit. This action will bring this harm. Or this action has overwhelming benefit. Therefore it is legislated. This action has pure benefit. Therefore it is legislated. For example, a sidq. Truthfulness is pure benefit, pure benefit, therefore it is legislated, right? Some things are a pure benefit, some things are overwhelming benefit, so they are legislated. Some things are pure harm, so they are, they are prohibited, pure harm, pure filth, like for example, the flesh of swine and the blood and things like that, it's disease and illness, prohibited, or some things are overwhelmingly uh, harmful, like alcohol for example there's small amount of benefit overwhelmingly harmful so the point being that the law comes and it, it it tells us that these actions are beneficial if you do them and these actions are harmful if you do them right, this is what it comes with and it gives us that light and it gives us that guidance and so he says so the, the law comes to distinguish between the actions which will harm a person in his life and hereafter, and those actions which will you know, benefit a person. Then he goes on to explain by giving many examples. He says, for example, the benefit of Iman, the benefit of Tawheed, the benefit of Al-Adl, Al-Adl which is justice, and righteousness, Al-Bir, and Tasadduq which is giving charity, and benevolence, and being trustworthy, and being pure and you know, um, chast, al-ifa, and being brave, and having hilm, which is being patient, and forbearing, commanding the good, prohibiting the evil, keeping the ties of kinship, being righteous to one's parents, being kind to the slaves, and, and you know, the types of, like, like the neighbor, and so on and so forth, fulfilling your rights, making your actions sincerely for Allah, having tawakkal upon Allah, seeking aid from Allah, being pleased with the qadr of Allah, and submitting to his judgment, complying with his command, being loyal and showing loyalty towards, towards his friends and allies, and having enmity towards his enemies, and fearing him in the seen and the unseen, 
seeking nearness to him by doing the obligations, keeping away from what, what is haram, and expecting reward from him. And, you know, uh, believing him, believing his messengers in everything that they informed, doing all that he commanded. So basically he's mentioning all of the, you know, major things in, in the religion. So he says, in all of this is benefit for the servant in this life and the next. So the point being here, if you look at all of the legislations of Islam, look at all of these things that are being mentioned, and how they are mentioned in the Qur'an, and how they are enjoined, they are enjoined in such a way that, obviously, first of all, it draws a person to to uh, enact them. And secondly, um, all of these affairs ensure the preservation of the religion. Right? Hifzuddin min janibil wujud, from the angle of existence. And in contrast to that, Ibn Taymi says, in the opposite of all of these things, in the opposite of all of these things that are mentioned here, there is wretchedness, there is harm in this life and the next. And had it not been for the Risala, then a person's aql would not have known the detailed things that benefit and the detailed things that harm in this life and the hereafter. So this shows the tremendous favor of Allah Azawajal in that when a human is pulled in two ways, is being pulled towards what he wants to be of benefit to him and pulled towards what's harmful to him, he doesn't have the intellectual capacity on his own to make distinction what is actually harmful and what is actually beneficial. So the law of Allah has come and has relieved him of that burdensome task. Right? He does not need to do any long-term observations or do any scientific experiments or whatever else or, you know, in order to, to find out what is, what is beneficial and wholesome, what is harmful and impure in terms of actions or deeds. The legislation of Allah has come and has freed his mind, freed his mind from having to uh, figure out these things. And this is from the greatest of the favors of Allah upon his servants, as a result of which they, they have true life, true happiness. And obviously, by now, you should, this should be very clear to you. We don't need to uh, give, you know, we've mentioned examples and illustrations of this in many of the previous uh, lessons. I'll remind you with two quick examples. With alcohol, right? Muslims are the greatest population on this planet who do not drink. And as a result of them not drinking, life is saved, intellect is saved, wealth is saved, lineage is saved, right? The people of any nation, all of the people in this country need to be grateful to Muslims because every Muslim who does not drink means less dead people on the roads, means less domestic violence, means less burden upon the health systems of the country, right? How much does alcohol cost these people on a yearly basis? How much does it cost the NHS, right? So this is why we look at these people, on the one hand we feel sorry for them because they are upon the darknesses of disbelief and then, on the other hand, we laugh at the foolishness of their intellects. The stupidity of their intellects. Right? 
you you spend I don't know what it was I checked some uh, newspapers I don't know how many billion is spent just to deal with all of the problems that alcohol brings into society right causes many types of cancers domestic violence 50% of it is you know alcohol related uh, crime uh, people being killed on the roads due to drink driving um, you, you know uh, intellectual capacity lost because of that so many things in billions and billions and billions and billions right so what these people do is that they allow that which is unlawful and harmful and then legislate in order to limit the harms whereas Islam comes and cuts off the malady from the very beginning ends at the very beginning right so uh, you know this is one example we can give many other examples you, you know you, you understand the point so um, all of that time that is spent upon medical research and this it's all wasting money just stop alcohol and you'll bring tremendous benefits to your society and so anyway we don't need to di- digress into that but but this is the point that we that, that we need to understand in the various legislations that Islam brings to you the same thing can be mentioned for example about the interaction between men and women how you know needless interaction between men and women in society is something that over time is going to lead to tremendous problems and that's why now you know uh, you see for example this issue about harassment in the workplace right there's many many headlines you can go and find the headlines online just to harassment workplace and you'll find news from all across the world it's uniform right uh, i made a list of maybe 20 30 uh reports in in the news and research and is from all across the world in different cultures from from japan to australia to america to you know india in every place where alcohol is consumed and not just it's across every industry as well so it's in the sky in the airplanes it's in the hospitals it's in the military it's in the education it's in uh, even in government and parliament it's in every place right and what's happening is that there's, there's sexual harassment and it's males harassing females. And it's happening because of too much friendliness and familiarity between the two, male and female. And then the male misreads or misunderstands the friendliness of the woman as somehow it's a hint towards something. The man misreads, right? And then this leads to... Uh, harassment and things like that or whatever and this is you will see the word it is uh, what do you call it is it a pandemic or what do you call it is a it's um there's a word that they use for it um that it's it's the it's a huge problem in every layer of in every kind of industry in every culture and uh well, islam just cuts off the problem from the very beginning right and now some of the very smart guys the very the big businessmen they're realizing that if i'm alone with a woman and she accuses me of rape well, the court's going to, the, the law supports her over me, and I'm going to lose millions. Right? So, some of these, if you, you'll find newspapers saying that some of these guys, top level businessmen, saying to their, to their uh, lower executives, do not ever be alone with a woman. Do not be alone with a woman in the workplace. Right? But what are they scared of? They're scared of being sued for harassment or for rape. Yeah? Where Islam has freed us from that. We don't, we don't need to go through this experiment of. You know, tens and tens, decades, decades, decades. Islam has come with, with with complete guidance. So, the point being that the soul is inclined towards what will benefit it, 
and inclined towards repelling what will harm it. However, it is unable to know that in detail except by way of the revelation. And the revelation has brought all of these things that Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned that a person follows and, you know, as a result of which he will benefit in this life and the next and he will have a wholesome life. As for those people who follow the opposite of that, they will be in misery, they will have harm in this life and the hereafter and had it not been for the, you know, the, the, the sharia, then no one would have been able to distinguish the details of what is beneficial and what is harmful. So he says, Allah <laughs> sent messengers to them, revealed books upon them, explained the straight path to them. Had it not been for that, they would have been like the animals, rather even a, in a worse situation than the animals. So anyone who accepts the message of Allah remains steadfast upon it. He is from the khayr al-bariyya. He's from the best of the creation. And anyone who rejects it or departs from it, he is from the sharril bariya, the most evil of creation. And he's in the worse situation than the dog, the pig, and all of the, the animals. Right? The one who refuses the, the message of Allah Azawajal. So after this, Ibn Taymi says that so long as the traces of the messengers, meaning the message that the messengers leave behind, so long as that remains, then the peoples, the people of the earth will uh, will remain. And at the end of time, when these remnants of the teachings of the messengers disappear completely, this is when Allah will overturn and destroy the world and he will establish the day of judgment. And he says that the people of the earth are in need of the messengers more than they are in need of the sun and the moon and the winds and the rains and so on and so forth. And more than they are in need of food and drink. That's the end of his statement. Also the next statement or is in fact a passage where Ibn Taymiyyah explains, and we'll finish on this, in fact we'll finish on this note, we'll continue in the next lesson. So basically he says, that when we look at all the things which are commanded and prohibited, they fall into three categories. It is either aqli, or milli, or shari'i. Right, so everything, everything, every type of command or prohibition, it is either aqli, it is derived by reason, or it is milli, it is something agreed upon, by all religions, or it is shari, meaning that it is something that the Sharia of Islam came with. 
right? So aqli, milli, or shari. As for aqli, this is something that all people of intelligence, just pure by, by, by intellect, by reason, you know that speaking truthful is something that's obviously is, is legislated, something that is uh, desired to, to speak uh, with truth. And um, likewise, to be just, likewise to be trustworthy. These, these are things that rationally, you know, they every culture, every society knows just through reason alone that these are praiseworthy uh, traits, that these are required traits, right? To be truthful, to be honest, and so on and so forth. Then you have those which are milli. Milli are those which in general religion brings. Uh, that, that religion... So these are things like the prohibition of shirk with Allah and um, some of the acts of worship that are, that are commanded. Right, these are milli. That's something that in general all religions would, would command. And then the third one is shari, which is specifically to do with the sharia of the Qur'an. And so this then brings specific things like the five prayers, fasting the Ramadan, right, and all the other, like the charity, obligatory charity, things like that. These are specific to Islam. <coughs> so all of the commands and prohibitions, uh, they fall into these three categories. We'll stop there, inshallah. We'll continue this uh, topic of this passage, in fact, in uh, the next uh, lesson. So with that, we'll conclude our lesson for today. And inshallah, we'll continue the next time that we meet, inshallah, in two weeks' time. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.